This is Joe Dancy with the SMU McGuire Energy Institute here in Dallas. Thank you for joining the program. We just refer to him as energy expert and educator because he's at so many conferences and he also teaches uh, law as well as energy type uh, topics and courses, if you will. So energy expert and educator, Mr. Joe Dancy, how you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. It's getting warm down here in Dallas, which is good. We're starting to use some electricity to turn those air conditioners, which helps out for natural gas demand. <laughs> so let's uh, do a little current event here really quickly about the global oil market primed for steep U.S. oil inventory this summer. Talk to me a little bit about that breaking news this morning before we get into some other stuff. I got a, you sent me that email, so I thought we'd get right into it. Yeah, that's some good stuff there. What's going on? Well, actually, the uh, Raymond James put out a report. It's a weekly report, but they just looked at the uh, crude oil inventory. They've been bullish, Jason, for a couple of years now, maybe a little bit prematurely, but their analysis is right on as far as just the trends. And part of the the price of oil correlates with inventories uh, to a large extent. And when your inventories draw down, generally your prices get a little bit higher. It's supply and demand. I mean, you and I know that. But a lot of people think it's all mysterious. And uh, what they came out this morning with is like they, they pretty much said that uh, uh, this summer they expect uh, some pretty substantial inventory draws, which will probably push oil prices up. And, of course, you and I know, you know, dealing in the Bakken and dealing in the Barnett and dealing in the Permian. I mean, a lot of the stuff, if you have $50 a barrel oil and you're doing okay, when you have $70 a barrel oil, you know, generally you're doing really okay, which means you can expand, you can hire people, you can buy more prospects or put on more rigs. Uh, and so if oil prices are move, you know, move relatively steadily and don't just jump you know wildly uh steadily through the summer and through the fall upward that might be very bullish for uh oil prices or for oil companies for mineral owners for royalty owners you know states like north dakota and texas that get a bunch of royalties the royalty check will get bigger and employees will um although boy lately it's it's but i've heard opposite news too that people are um not quite as optimistic but but you can't argue with the inventory trends and i i think raymond james is right on with them so that's that's the positive news how about when it comes to energy expos this is one of my favorite parts you go to so many energy expos and legal expos and water expos and conventions and interstate commerce I mean, you, you name it, if it has to do with uh, energy, which pretty much everything does, uh, it seems like you're there. You're, you know, you're kind of a trade show nomad. They used to call me the North Dakota nomad. I, had, I was trying to think of a different name for you, but um, uh, any energy educator, expert ends up what it being. So talk to me about some of these uh, different pr uh, conferences and shows that you've been at and what osmosis information can you share with us? Well, actually, the... Uh Drilling Info put on a, this is their second year doing it. It's invite only, uh, invite to policymakers, regulators, politicians, um, not many politicians, but uh, executives from the industry as well as technical, I mean, engineers and geologists. And 
they held this second conference up in Kohler, Wisconsin. Actually, your buddy Lynn Helms, regulator from North Dakota, was there. There were several other North Dakota people there that uh, uh, got for the life of me. I can't remember some of their names, but they all were North Dakota regulators as well as North Dakota operators. Uh, not entirely. It was, you know, there are a lot of Permian people there, too, and probably more Texans than anybody else just because we've got more rigs running down here than anybody else. But uh, it was a good good program. Texas Railroad Commissioner was there. I had dinner or lunch with him and was interesting talking to him about, oh, this is the regulatory oversight. And, uh, and what they did is they had a number of uh, presenters, a number of uh, presentations, as well as um, a number of uh, – of, of, of um, side breakout sessions where you could actually, uh, you know, listen to some presentations and everything from, oh, and actually one of the big ones was on drilling in the Bakken. Uh, what did, what's changed over the last 10 years? And it's really, really positive to, to listen to those stories. But uh, in any event, uh, so that was in Kohler, Wisconsin. It was a three-day program. And, um, and again, one of the things that came across, and, and I don't I didn't, you may know this, but I didn't realize the first really horizontal well that was designed and specifically drilled was by Atlantic Richfield or ARCO back in 1984. And uh, and then in 1981, they pointed out that only 2% of the wells were horizontal and now 88% are. And I think in North Dakota, probably 95% are, and probably Texas too. But uh, it's interesting to see the technological revolution that has occurred and they pointed out you know, costs have come down from you know eleven ten or eleven million dollars a well to six or seven million dollars a well, depending on how long it is, how many fracks you have. Uh, the uh, efficiencies have gotten much better. The drilling activity you know used to take a month to drill a well, and now it takes fourteen days to drill a two mile well. They used to have a a window of the, to try to stay within the formation of fifteen feet. And now they've, they've decreased that window to eight feet, and they said 85 to 90% of the time, this is in the bucket anyway, uh, 85 to 90% of the time, they can, this is incredible, Jason, they can stay within an eight foot window for two to three miles out, and uh, 85 to 90% of the time, and that's uh, just incredible. Um, and then they were talking, oh, just about what we've seen in recovery so far and they and that's sort of a little bit disappointing a, a number of folks said they were they had estimated the ultimate recovery estimated ultimate recovery at x and they're only getting 80 to 85 percent of x so they're the they're overestimating what they call the b factor and i didn't i didn't know what the b factor is until i had a guest speaker in my class about a year ago and it's just a decline curve it depends how steep it is and Depending on the B factor, depends on how much oil you get. So the engineers all sit around when they drink beer, unlike you and I that talk about baseball or something. Uh, you know, they all talk about B factors and you know what it looks like. And the B, the B factor in the Balkans different than the B factor in the Permian. And but whatever it is, the B factor that's been estimated at least um, in the Balkan, from from what I heard. And again, this is all I'm just a canary sitting there. You know, listening and repeating what I heard is um, they were a little bit too aggressive in selling this stuff to investors as far as exactly what they would get, which obviously sort of screws up your financial model. Your returns aren't quite as good, but they still still it's still real profitable to drill wells in the Balkan. And uh, 
whether it's oil or uh, the oil you're getting up there. I mean, they noted you know, originally they they didn't think oil. And this is I forgot all about this. It's, you know, they hit natural gas first, and I thought oil molecules were much too long to push through. Um, you know those compact shales, and uh, you know they do, they are pretty long, but they're getting the the high quality, the lower the lower uh, the, the smaller molecules fuel, which makes for lighter fuels. And uh, in any event, the exciting thing, and I I had heard this before from um, the CEO of Core Laboratories uh, during their conference calls, talks about the state of the industry, and he was talking about unconventional shales like the Bakken or like the Permian. And he was talking about um, enhanced oil recovery. And, you know, when you hear a CEO talking about it, you sort of, you have to be somewhat skeptical because they're selling their product and their book. And they were talking about what a good, a huge future enhanced oil recovery has in, in unconventional shales. And the guy that I heard in Kohler, Wisconsin, and again, was put on by drilling info um uh the guy I heard in cola and it wasn't a drilling info person it was a the rules were you could sit you could sit you could talk but you can't identify who the speakers were and part of it is they wanted people to be real open as to you know how good we were doing or how bad we we're doing or how we had to address stuff but one of the things that came up is especially in the block and they said enhanced oil recovery might be a huge huge thing because you're only getting a real small fraction of the oil out of the unconventional and if you can go in and of course i know the the technology they've used in the past is they inject carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide is like a paint thinner and it sort of gets absorbed by the oil and it makes the oil runnier and so you get a pretty good kick of oil um you know from the enhanced oil enhancement uh technology now exactly how that technology is going to work you know, to date, Jason, they sort of have what's called a huff and puff. What they go in is they put a bunch of carbon dioxide, they push it in the well, and they let it sit there for a given amount of time, and then they pull it out. They, they turn the well back on, and the well remarkably does, you know, much better than it. And the expenses of that are relatively small. Now, as you know, you mean, back in the days, secondary recovery, where you injected water and actually you so you push it through the field and you're pulling it out of a different well. I They didn't talk about that. And I don't know whether that's possible with unconventional shales or not, but it was it was interesting. Um, the other interesting can, thing. Can I jump okay. in just one second jump, here, by the way, Joe? In. I'd love to hear if you've heard about this. Uh, Joe Dancy with us, energy educator and expert with us. Um, Huff and Puff, was that? Was that your word, or was that a word that they're using, or that 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 yes. one kind of struck me as weird because if you use the word paint thinner and then huff and puff in the same paragraph, it, it's gonna <laughs> it's it's gonna send you know kind of a message there that I'm not sure we want. Yeah, the uh, what was, that's the the you know for a carbon dioxide flood, you know they they, they that was the terminology they're using huff and puff, which okay. just means essentially. You're puffing the carbon dioxide that you have to capture from somewhere and pipe it in or, or truck it in. I don't know how the heck. I know there are some carbon dioxide floods I'm familiar with, and generally they have a source and they have a pipeline. I don't know for enhanced oil recovery in a in the Balkan whether you bring the carbon dioxide in by truck or pipeline. I have no clue well, or where the, they source it either. The, the reason I bring that up was to – 
One of the things that I spoke about and we talked about, and there was a discussion about at the Energy Expo uh, at Gillette, Wyoming, uh, mm-hmm. just recently, was uh, public relations and just some of the image that oil and gas is going through right now. And, you know, just to recap really quickly, um, you know, when you look at the industry over the last 10 years, we've made more money and spent more money than any other 10-year snapshot period in, in the history of oil and gas. You know, $100 oil. I mean, we had big numbers. And so a lot of money was made, a lot of money was spent. Through the course of that, if we take a step back and look at the body of work, you know, we kind of just got banned in Colorado. Oregon just passed it through the Senate. Um, Wyoming, the BLM land, they did some sort of ban on that. Two presidential candidates want to ban fracking in their or oil and gas in their platforms. So there's a public national discussion going on. And then the new, new Green Deal, from my understanding, wants to eliminate fossil fuels in 10 years. So when I take a step back, I remember what uh, a CEO said to me, well, actually at the Rocky Mountain Energy and Infrastructure Conference back in 2014, he brought up the word fracking. And he said, you know, if we would have gave the top firm in Madison Avenue a million dollars to come up with the worst word ever that we could use against our industry, they probably would have came up with fracking and we just did it to ourselves for free. And what he was saying is that, you know, back then, we got to be careful about how we do and describe certain things because sometimes the oil and gas industry can have a herd mentality. And these are his words, a herd mentality. And so we don't necessarily, you know, see the forest from the trees, so to speak. Huff and puff and, you know, these things, I'm just starting to wonder if maybe you're I, I, there's, there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm just saying that if we take a step back and look at the body of work, you know, the, the industry needs an image shot in the boost in the arm or something like that. And keep in mind, I grew up on, you know, Harry the Dirty Dog. So coal and oil, <laughs> oil and gas were embedded as dirty in my mind when I was a kid every day, you know, for my bedtime story. So there's some social engineering here. I don't want to get too deep here in the shallow pool, but at the same time, I want to set some context for your thoughts on just the industry's image and maybe some things like I gave a couple examples uh, of how we could maybe look at it differently. And I don't know, I'm going to shut up now and let you talk, but do do you have enough information to continue with the discussion? (laughs) Actually, Jason, you point out a really, really important uh, factor. And you didn't even mention, you mentioned all the other states, but New Mexico has just made a big change too, where... They have a ch- changing government. Actually, that was one of the sessions in Kohler. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I was at a different a different program on you know technological advances in drilling versus uh, you know what's happening in New Mexico. And, but apparently, the people came in and said, "God, have you heard what's happening in New Mexico?" And I said, "No." And like you say, the image New Mexico. If you look at the oil production, has gone through the roof. They're fast, you know, approaching. North Dakota and Texas, and they're surpassed Oklahoma, I think, because of the Permian Basin out there. And it's a tremendous, it's all federal lands, but it is a tremendous economic wealth booster. But the image is so poor. And I, you know, I know this because I've dealt a little bit with the University of New Mexico and their oil and gas program. You know, the image is so poor that um, you can't convince people it's better, you know, to leave it in the ground or to heavily regulate it or to, you know, to control and maybe controlling um, the development at a much slower pace. But um, what 
people don't realize, and I think what at the core of Wisconsin program, and of course these are all mainly industry regulators and industry experts and technology. We realize how important energy is. You know, to you go where you go around the world and see where there's the worst poverty, and generally you have energy poverty. You can't, you don't have oil, you don't have coal, you burning wood um, or cow dung, and you know the economics. The economics and prosperity and health all correlate with energy, which which 90% of which or 85% is oil, gas, and coal. I mean, those are that's the facts. And so um, the facts that we have a a bad reputation in parts of the world, you know, due to various reasons, some of which are incredibly justified. You know, is is one thing. You know, going forward, that's one thing. Why I like I go to all these conferences, I do all this writing, I do all these speaking, because I think it's incredibly important that the United States realize we are unique and that we have privately owned minerals. Almost no other country on the face of the earth has that, and we are developing those. And as we're developing those, I mean, where else can you go out with a high school education, work on a rig in North Dakota, and make a hundred thousand a year? You know, you can't do that. You're know, working, busting tables at a restaurant, um, or drilling a well two miles underground. You know, you know, oil well, which the technology spins off into water and spins off into other technologies. So it's it's it, your point is well taken, and I'm not quite sure. You know, going forward, you know, how to address things, and I'm sure I know industry has thought about this. I guarantee you the people that were at this conference, all of them, you know, when, it, when you're sitting around the table, you know, they will talk about what a bad reputation we have, how our kids, especially our youth, all think oil and gas is um, despicable. None of them want to work in the industry. You look around, they said, Joe, the problem is there's so many people, you know, 55 years and older that are working in the industry. Their kids, you know, their kids want to, you know, they want to go design computer games or something, so uh, they don't realize how important energy is. And um, which is interesting because I know Bill Gates was interviewed, got about ten years ago, and they asked him, "Gee, if you didn't get into computers, what what are the two areas would you advise the youth to get into?" And he said, "One was medical, which makes a lot of sense. The other was energy because you you have unlimited demand for both." And he was right on. And of course, he's a big supporter and rightfully so of uh you know renewable energy efforts and and uh technology and and uh anyway it's interesting it's interesting great point jason i i uh not quite sure how we address it well and, and nobody really does it's a unique time in our in our history you know where the and this is i i did say this at the the conference um that when i grew up energy wasn't political it was just something that was there. And you complained about your, you know, your Excel bill or your energy bill. Excel is a provider where I'm at. And um, so there was some, you know, th there was some complaints, but it was never like a, a, a red or a blue issue like it is today. And I was interviewing a gentleman from Canada, Terry Edom. He's an author, and I believe it was him. And he brought up a really interesting point, or maybe it was Lauren Scott or Sterling Burnett. I think it was Sterling, Dr. Sterling Burnett who brought it up. Sorry, not name dropping, just trying to give proper credit. Um, he said that, you know, for a long time, the oil and gas industry invested in government relations, and they should. And then 
I brought in, in the media, how political and polarizing the government, uh, red and white and this and that, or red and blue, got over the last 10 years. So in essence, what happened was the environmentalists really took advantage of the complacency of politicians to kind of lump things within a red and a blue. And all of a sudden, oil and gas got thrown in with a you know conservative movement, if you will. So it kind of got lumped in with some other polarizing issues. Um, are you following me on that to where all of a sudden the politicians became the PR pieces for the oil companies? Exactly. And I, well, you know, at this point, most politicians are anti oil and anti uh, carbon. And, uh, and it's a, it's obviously, they think it's a platform that can sell and that can win. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't propose banning oil and gas fracking, banning oil and gas production, you know, restricting severely carbon emissions. If you didn't think it was a winning platform, although you look economically and if they, if this was mandated, the costs are just incredibly high and it would take, it would take a long time because the technology is still evolving and it'll, it'll evolve. You never know. Um, yeah, you never know where some of the renewables will go. And actually I was just up, I was just up visiting a power plant that was built as a coal plant in 1959 and 2007, they, converted it to a renewable biofuel plant where they're using, they're burning actually wood and uh, they're not making any money. <laughs> they're pretty much breaking even, but they say, you know, the forest, the forest are there, you know, it's renewable. We can, it's a perpetual um, source of fuel, unlike coal or oil or gas. And I guess when you look at it that way, that it, there is some justification to it, but it's much more efficient to burn coal or nuclear or gas, which when they said it was interesting, Jason, <laughs> the um, they said natural gas has really sort of ruined the electrical market because it's so cheap, it's so plentiful, it's so easy to put up a peaker plant or a natural gas electric plant that the 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 cost of electricity has come down substantially over the last ten or fifteen years because we found so much gas and it's so easy to throw it online to generate electricity that the com com competition, which is coal, and, well, and these paper, this at least this plant's competition, they said it's very difficult for them to make money. So, you know, you're seeing them being shuttered. You're seeing them, um, you know, just operating on a shoestring, which I thought was an interesting comment. So that's something else that society doesn't realize is how prevalent electricity is and how most of it isn't coming from your wind turbine or your solar. It's coming from a natural gas generator or a coal. There's still a lot of coal power out there um, as base load, which is great. I know in North Dakota, anywhere from 70 to 90% of the lights that are turned on are from coal. And people, right. don't, people don't know that. I mean, it's like it's well over 50% to where it's, like I said, it's like 70 to 90, depends on time of the year and all these other things. So. I did want to ask you about natural gas subsidies uh, shifting from uh, solar and wind to natural gas. But I also wanted to continue the conversation about the PR. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about the PR a little bit and then go to the natural gas subsidies. So that's what we call in this industry a tease. So if you're, huh. if you're looking for that. One of the things that also we talked about at the conference was 
it's really important right now because, you know, I, I, I made this comment that, you know, this is my first time at this conference and I recognize about 75% of the people. And, you know, it seems to me like we have a lot of the same people going to the same events. We're allocating a lot of the same resources and it seems like we're getting the same results. And again, go back to that 10-year body of work, Colorado, New Mexico, Oregon, Wyoming, presidential candidates, New Green Deal. Okay, we had a paradigm shift in the industry. We Every single department has been basically redone from the human resources with big data being brought in to the hydraulic uh, flushing, you know, the, the horizontal flushing that happens, the technology, you name it, all kinds of things have changed. So our public relations, we should really look at possibly doing a paradigm shift there too. So one of the things that I brought up was there's this company out in, I think it's Pennsylvania, and they've got a minor league baseball team they sponsor, the Junior Frackers, you know, and this way they're engaging with people that are not going to the energy conferences every year. You know, they're engaging with new people and trying to engage with kids that are not a part of the industry on a day-to-day -day life. There's, um, there's another guy up in Canada who's trying to uh, mine bitcoins through natural gas. You know, what a crazy idea. Um, so he's trying to do something completely different as well. Here at The Crude Life, one of the things that we do is we engage with uh, regional and local singer-songwriters and we use them as our bumper music. So in essence, what we've done is we've figured out a way to have musicians promote the oil and gas industry as opposed to protesting it. Now, is it going to change the industry's image overnight? No, but at least it's a step in the right direction and it's a thought. It's outside the box. You know, we're sp I sent you the belt of... Uh, the uh, greatest environmental uh, champion on, on the planet, Johnny Green, because I wanted you to see what we're doing. We're sponsoring an environmentalist because he believes that the industry has changed so much and they've gotten so technical and the environmentalists have changed so much that the oil and gas industry are truly the leaders right now of trying to save the planet with their reclamation programs, their implementation of regulations into third world countries. When you look at the big picture, the oil and gas industry is really doing more good to save the planet than harm, whereas today's environmentalist is more of a texting, trolling, coffee curing, drinking environmentalist, and the number one polluter on the planet is cell phones. So we kind of, I'm like, oh, this guy's great. He's going to go out to barbecues and, and all kinds of Fourth of July parades and, and engage with kids and their parents and, and, and totally change the entire conversation, instead of oil and gas being the number one polluter, it's cell phones. And we need to just power them down for an hour a day and just take the narrative back and instead of playing catch up, because the industry played catch up is, is right now. So that's my, that's my really long-winded question here is that, do you think the industry needs to engage with people outside the industry? And, and did anything that I'm kind of talking about ring a bell with you know the same people at the same conferences, et cetera? Well, it is interesting, and I, I'm not sure the industry knows how to respond or the regulators. And I mean, it's a, it's a concern across the board because these folks all know, like you and I, how important energy is and how the good jobs, how it generates good jobs. But how, how do you sell this to, you know, someone who's convinced that that global warming is a matter of life and death, and within ten years we're all going to be dead. I mean, and literally, there's people out there, Jason, I had a hard time believing that people would actually believe that, but there are people who 
think within 10 years, you know, the Earth's going to be 15 degrees warmer. And it is interesting. I, I've done some studies, and this has been a number of years ago, but, you know, we could take the you know, North America climate and drought, drought cycles, and you go back six or 700 years, and I was wondering, how do you go back six or 700 years? We only, you know, probably been on over here for... Know, a few hundred years and you could do it with tree rings and which can give you um some data as well as other scientific to determine you know temperatures and temperatures vary sub- substantially as well as the water cycles which some people now are saying gee global warming is causing floods up in north dakota and in mississippi and everywhere else we need to control um it's interesting you know to educate people i'm not sh- i'm really not sure industry has a handle i'm not sure regulators have a handle i could tell you educators don't have a handle uh on it and um on your cell phone comment that is sort of interesting i agree with that and one of the shocking things i didn't realize this if you if you put um the consumer the uh, number of the amount of electricity that's consumed globally by country the amount of electricity consumed by cell phones would be like number three behind China and the United States. <laughs> and so, if, if, oh, but, if cell but, phones, but here's what people don't understand phones, about cell phones: it's a three, uh, it's a, it's a three prong attack. You've got um, the rare earth minerals, so you have all the mining and the rare earth minerals that are not very advantageous for the planet, right? Second, right. you have the manufacturing of the cell phones. So when you take into account all the energy that's needed to manufacture all the pieces and the equipment, et cetera, okay? And then number three, and this is the one that hardly anybody talks about, and this is why the uh, today's environmentalist has actually become the biggest polluter. This is another reason why we love Johnny Green is because it's the data centers. The data centers, right. the amount of heat and the energy and the air conditioning it takes to, to keep them cool is really that kind of that, um, you don't want to say dirty little secret because, you know, what it is. But so the reason Johnny Green, we love him so much is because he's an all of the above uh, energy guy. He thinks every energy has a purpose because we need energy. Now, um, he happens to believe that wind was more um, efficient 100 years ago when farmers used it to get water. And in in comparison to today. And so he calls a spade a spade there. He says solar. Yeah, they've done they've done okay. But as far as being economical, really, all you can do is charge your cell phone and, you know, have some good camping equipment. But as far as panels for your house, no, they're not there yet. So it's it's not a deal. Uh, Natural gas, he looks at as really more of a free energy because there's so much of it. And this is where I wanted to ask you about the subsidies part. Imagine if we lived in a world where we took 50% or 100% of the subsidies towards solar and wind. They've had 40 years of social engineering and subsidies. 20 years, it's been ramped up, okay? They've really, by their standards, have, have failed. Like I said, the, the farmers were more efficient 100 years ago getting water out than what a wind turbine is today. And I don't think there's, and you know, it's, it's, as far as efficiency goes, I feel very confident saying that. Not as a political statement, as a factual statement. Solar, same thing. We were supposed to be at a terawatt of storage. We're not there yet. Um, you know, there's, there's proof in California that when they try to rely on the wind and solar for the grid, it causes problems. 
and all of a sudden um, the trees are getting burned because of um, the problems with the, with the uh, saggy transmission wires causing anyway it's it's there's there's more problems than what they're talking about so if we shifted the subsidies to natural gas I believe and I'm going to have this conversation with senators and and congressmen as well US senators and congressmen that we could solve this flaring issue and we could come up with some new innovative things that would make this planet a totally different place with the plastics and fuels and just the innovation alone because these guys they're already using their own money to camp out on well sites and Bitcoin mine up in Canada and come up with some new way to make um, trucks work on LNG. Do you know what I mean by that? There's so many clever capitalists in the uh, um, natural gas world right now. Imagine if they got a little subsidy help. Yeah, that could help a lot. Just just pushing, uh, especially venture capital money. I know exports are, if you've seen the charts, and I know you have, the exports of natural gas either liquefied or, you know, obviously we're, we're constrained by geography. You can't export gas by pipeline to Europe, but you can to Mexico. And Mexico huh, is a perfect example. And I tell my students, Jason, I mean, the, the minerals down there are owned by the government. And uh, as such, they haven't had as an aggressive exploration and development program as they saw in the united states or we've seen and so they actually are major importers of natural gas and you know of crude oil a lot of their their cannarel field has was discovered in the late 70s and it's pretty well depleted now that's the offshore field and and uh just the when you when you have state-owned minerals it's difficult to get economic incentives and people who take risks um you're you're focused on other other issues so um a a you know natural gas has a tremendous potential and i know oh god years ago it's been 20 now I, we did a bunch of research here in dallas uh i worked for the gas company as a lawyer and we did a lot of research in the compressed natural gas vehicles and i drove one back then it was actually a it's a gasoline and natural gas vehicle where you could flip a switch so you didn't get straight away, and it, uh, it it ran pretty darn well. And uh, uh, the problem is you had a big a big tank at the uh, trunk, and so your trunk was about half the size of the normal. But uh, in any event, the the technology I'm sure today is you know it's like a computer back then would have take up the whole trunk, and now it take up maybe a you know, a sandwich size piece of uh, equipment versus what we had back then. So the technology and the the natural gas, I mean, you really could, you could actually probably even push to have a, a natural gas entrepreneurial institute or something to promote, you know, ideas like you just mentioned, you know, mining Bitcoin with natural gas flaring. Um, I will tell you, you know, natural gas flaring is still a major issue and they're building out pipelines, but it's still a huge issue in texas and i know it's an issue in north dakota and the regulators and politicians and the companies are aware of it that one of the things going back to your public relations this actually came up in wisconsin somebody mentioned that look regardless of what the regulators do from a company standpoint you know some of these firms should just shut in your oil production until you have because the flaring sends a terrible message to the public because you can see that as you know if you're driving out at night you can see it five miles away. You look at the flare, and it's like uh, uh, a message that 
you know, we're wasting, we're wasting nat- our natural resource. We're um, polluting. But if you remove those and, and they will be to a large extent reduced, at least in the Permian over the next six months, as we build out our pipeline system, if they're getting very close to getting things hooked up uh, to get it exported to the Gulf coast and down to Mexico, uh, it, uh, but it's not going to help natural gas markets, natural gas, Oil prices, as we started off, I'm pretty bullish on natural gas. I have much more concerns because we have so darn much of it, Jason, but the opportunities are there. The other thing that came up, I guess, at this Wisconsin drilling info uh, meeting was that you go to Germany and you look at all the renewable energy, and it's great, but they're paying three or four times what we pay for electricity in the United States. So if you want renewables and if you really want to be green, and there's an argument it's really not all that green because just you noted the lithium, the, the everything, the offshore wind turbines, the the all the other alternatives are not all that green. But you know, if you want to increase your price of you know your monthly electric bill by four times, you know we can go, we can really push hard for renewables. But economically, natural gas gives us such an economic advantage for our economy, for our jobs, for our people, for our states, for our cities. Yeah, it makes no sense to to push as hard as say Germany has for uh, renewables. And they mentioned, you know, you can actually refine oil in Germany. You can refine oil in Houston, ship it all the way over to Europe, and undercut um, the refineries over there because the crude oil is cheaper because we have a lot of, you know, just West Texas is is a lot cheaper than Brent. Electricity is a you know, a third of the cost of what it is over there. Labor is probably about the same, maybe a little cheaper. And so, uh, you know, you can put it on a barge or put it on a a ship and ship it all the way from Houston to um, France or Germany or Denmark and unload it, store it, ship it, and you still can undercut the refineries over there. So the refineries in Europe have been in a world of hurt from what, from what I heard, so we'll see. My understanding is they ter- they fired up the coal plants in Germany as well in the last month to satisfy some of the um, strain on the grid. So, I mean, it's, you, it's tough, you know, because you just pretty much, like you said, the, the one thing I don't think the American public understands is the increase in price that's going to come with uh, a shift to renewables. I mean, it's going to... I also... One of the subsidies things I heard about the uh, shifting my, my, you know, my conversation, and this is it, I'm just trying to have a conversation about it just to shed some light that, you know, we, we could solve this natural gas problem and not only solve it, but a lot like in North Dakota, the flaring, the mineral owners don't get paid. So all of a sudden now you'd be giving local people mineral rights now they can go kind of have a nice little stimulus for their local economy as well and that's why i'm looking at the layers involved here because at least in north dakota you know they're taxed i think 11 and a half percent so you got an oil tax and a production tax extraction tax and a production tax and then and then you've got some fees and you know you've got the new normal with it which is with attorneys now it seems like with so many different things between archaeologicals and environmentalists and it's just there's there's those and then they always make sure they have enough money left over for the church bake sales and the kids make sure they got their little league and that sort of thing and R&D just seems like it's you know so far down in the totem pole because things are going good without it you know and so 
I'm not trying to stick up for the energy companies. I'm not trying to shift subsidies over there. I'm just trying to have the conversation of what would a world look like if we did that. And Dr. Sterling Burnett, he said that the solar and wind um, companies would go out of business overnight. He goes, not in a week, not in a month. He goes, if 50% of their subsidies went away or 100%, he goes, overnight, they would go out of business. I didn't realize they were that reliant on um, subsidies. Yeah, the tax the tax uh, incentives are pretty <laughs> pretty substantial, and I was pretty shocked too because I one of the things when I teach um, energy law is I, I actually teach the these are going to be lawyers, but I I think it's real important they understand the economics because and what I do is I give them a very basic cash flow model, and when you take you know you're spending a million dollars and you get a thirty percent federal tax credit right up front, it's like you know, dudes, you know, this is a huge amount. You don't get this in most investments. So you, when you construct your model, you're not going to spend the money until you know you're going to get a return or your, your investors aren't going to give you the money to spend until they know they're going to get a return. And when you have a 30%, I mean, that's just the federal. And then you go to the state. And I know the state of Texas, for, for example, solar, there's a number of um, local tax incentives that are also substantial so you start at 30 percent and you go upward and so when you have the government um subsidizing you know a major you know and not that that's been bad jason because it has developed an alternative source of energy that it, it all energy is good as far as getting it into the grid it's just a question of how efficient do we want to be or inefficient i sure as i don't want to be my electric bill is pretty reasonable in Dallas for in the, but you know if I took and multiplied it times four and said you know I'm, you're in Germany now, let's multiply it by four, um, I wouldn't be really happy because it's you know that'd be substantial amount of income over the year over the twelve month period anyway that uh, um, would <laughs> impact your well it wouldn't impact my living standard but for a lot of people you know most people it would who are who are much younger. I'm, luckily, I've you know run through things and done done. I've been very lucky in the energy sector as well as in the technology sector with some of the stuff I've been involved with. Not always lucky. I've lost my shirt too a few times. But uh, uh, North Dakota has been really good for me, by the way. It's uh, it's been a state, so is Texas, and so uh, I'm pleased with both. But on the other hand, if you look at the subsidies, going back to the topic, uh, if you look at the subsidies when you and one of the things coming up now with regard to wind power is some of these subsidies are going to be um, reduced or um, eliminated. And, and you're seeing some of our renewable energy friends get real excited about it. And, of course, you know, on one hand, they're telling us this is the cheapest power out there. On the other hand, you know, don't take away our subsidy. And, and, of course, one of the reasons it's cheap is because there is a subsidy. And the other reason is as a wind and solar producer, you generally can step in front of the baseload plant plants and sell your capacity. As a baseload plant, which is which is one that continually runs, I mean, you pretty much you're obligated to continue to produce with with wind. If it's blowing right now, you can put your electricity you know, under most of the grids the way they operate. The wind people, you can step. It's like a movie theater where the coal plants are somewhere in the mid, the back of the line. If if you're a, a solar or wind turbine generator, uh, you can step right up to the front of the line at the at the movie theater, get your ticket, and walk in. And if the wind stops blowing, then the, the coal guy has to come in and pay the you know 
pay for your ticket too. So it's sort of it's an interesting setup the way the regulate regulations work and the technology works too. You're an educator, Joe Dancy, energy educator and energy expert with um, SMU. You're out these days. I'm at the SMU McGuire Institute here in Dallas and teaching at the uh, business school as well as the law school, energy law, energy finance, energy investment. Um, and of course, all this stuff, Jason, energy is so cool because you, you're dealing with massive amounts of capital. You're dealing with massive uh, amounts of technology. You're, you, lately, you've been dealing with cutting edge issues and cutting edge whether you're drilling a well or whether you're transporting or whether you're taking like natural gas and liquefying it. Who would have believed 30 years ago we'd have these huge facilities to liquefy natural gas and ship it from the United States to Lord knows. Um, and, and of course you have all these legal issues because the price goes up and people are, are wildly happy and the price goes down and everybody's in bankruptcy court trying to figure out what we're going to do next. And um, which makes it exciting for you and me because we're sort of, we get to sit and watch all this stuff and it's a, it's like going to the circus sometimes. It's uh, it's interesting to see, and hopefully uh, you hope the tiger doesn't get out of the cage and come after us. <laughs> Speaking of that a little bit with some of the things we've been talking about, um, wind, solar, renewables. I heard a term at the conference from one of the speakers where he said that he doesn't call them renewables. He calls them preferred because hydro and nuclear are also renewable and they're nowhere ever in the conversation and i get i got his point i just wanted to get your thought on that a little bit the preferred energy as the term versus renewable energy because hydro and nuclear are renewable good question i really hadn't thought too much about that it was a uh, good one wasn't it (laughs) yeah it is a good one i I guess i have a little bit i've heard and i really haven't thought that much the uh Oh, the hydropower being renewable, but uh, that's that's interesting, and it is it is, uh, uh, and of course the problem with with hydro from tax subsidies and everything else, it's difficult. You got you start making dams these days. I mean, it was bad enough, not bad enough. I've been involved with a few dams that were built in Oklahoma, maybe thirty years ago or twenty five years ago, doing some of the legal work, and you know it was. Is even government land, but the, the condemnation that's required and some of the issues when you start flooding areas that have not been flooded in the past. And then you go into if it's a new dam these days, you got to you know you're moving people it gets incredibly expensive. So it's uh, and as well as it takes forever to you know unlike a wind turbine or solar array that you can the project has a relatively short life short startup period where you get the permits and get it put together a dam lasts for eight for ages which is which for me was fun because i just had gotten out of law school and i got to work on on the um i think it was called the mcgee creek uh, dam in oklahoma and it was kind of i mean there's a little bit of work every month on it and we would never move very fast but in the day i think the dam is uh his dam was up and running and filled and one of the concerns we had was there was some oil wells, some old oil wells in the area. And once you plug and start flooding that stuff, if you don't plug all the oil wells correctly, you're going to have a, you know, an inland inland pond with a bunch of um, oil on it. And I, I don't think it was used to generate electricity. I think it was mainly drinking water. But, um, yeah, so the, the, yeah, the, 
water hydro as a electrical source is is another huge issue and boy the interesting thing with the hydro though you go back and you read about niagara falls when they first tried to figure out you know westinghouse and tesla tried to figure out how the hell to harness that water power and it's just fascinating um you know the history behind all that and the fact that alternating current was the only way they were able to get that power from niagara falls all the way to buffalo and it never would have worked with direct current and the big fight back then between edison with direct current and westinghouse and tesla with alternating current and the millions they spent to to build the you know the hydro facilities they have there that's one area if i ever get a chance i need to make a side trip one of these years to go up to buffalo to see if i can visit some of the uh some of the hydro plants i don't even know security wise i'm not sure they need give tours anymore but i sure as heck would like to see that because it's a the falls is beautiful itself but i just like to see the electrical equipment and stuff up there anything else on the horizon for mr joe dancy as we kind of gear up for the summer and take a look at what we have in front of us i see that you know ace pass that's something that was is now done being political and now part of a reality uh, new Green Deal, you know, in, in kind of, I guess, a reality, so to speak. The presidential uh, uh, debates have started, which is a, a kind of a scary reality that's now started. So um, what what kind of stuff you got planned for the summer? Oh, really? Uh, actually, I'm going to go up to Upper Michigan to an old uh, copper mining district back during the Civil War. It's all abandoned now and we're doing some ground penetrating radar work with regard to uh some of the facilities they had there and actually we're going to uh to it's a what's abandoned graveyard and we're going to run ground penetrating radar to see the extent we we know there's a number because of the headstones we know there's a number of people buried there but we're not quite sure you know how the extent of the graveyard of course we're not going to do any archaeology digging in the graveyard but we do it, it will it'll give us some historical perspective as to and do a little bit of forensic science as to as to anything that we find in some of these some of these old abandoned ghost towns that uh, sort of dot in the ghost mines and of course the ghost mines are all plugged up right now but that's my uh that's my uh summer uh track and i'm also going to go up to uh i'd really like to go up to toledo to see the to see the uh glass museums up there and there's something i this is sort of an interesting uh, history uh, most people don't realize that um you know libby glass and everything the reason they're in toledo is because number one there's a bunch of really good clean sand up there and the other reason is is because they had they found a bunch of natural gas up there and essentially uh and when they found the natural gas, natural gas is hot enough to be able to um, melt the the silica, and so uh, it made. That's why Toledo is the glass country, is because natural gas and you know these old oceans that left all this sand. So it's sort of a uh, interesting history. But uh, other than that, that's going to get geared up to get ready to teach in the fall. Final thoughts as we wind down. Of course, you know, I like to give guests final words. So take the floor however you want. Reiterate, recap. Just go ahead, sir. Well, I think the, it, the energy sector is going to be really interesting this summer if Raymond James is correct with the report that just came out uh, just 
today actually uh, uh, dealing with inventories, oil inventories. I think we're going to see higher prices, which I think is going to stabilize things uh, in the energy sector. So, so all f- you know, full steam ahead, Jason. I'm I'm pretty optimistic. 